My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Humanidites, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater bringing you another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. Thank you so much for continuing to support the show in the third year of production. And while we're here, and while I do appreciate your continued support through your downloads, if you could go drop a review or a rating wherever you're picking the show up, I really would love your feedback. As far as podcasts go, that really helps grow the show. Plus, gets me to connect directly with you as well. Okay. All right, begging aside, I'm really excited to give this episode to you. For today, I bring back my old college buddy, Karen Knappenberger, who's a mental health professional. Karen first appeared on the show in episode three, The Deuce, in which we talked about how Karen applied the concept of drama therapy, and she still utilizes it as applicable today. In any case, I thought of Karen for this episode as I felt the subject matter should be shared and presented to a successful, highly educated woman who also understands the value of theater and how it's presented. Karen and I had a truly wonderful time talking about this subject, so let's just get right into this episode, Women on the British Restoration Stage. Karen, my God, it's been three years. Thanks for having me back. Oh, my. Of course. Of course. You're <laughs> such a delight. I have had so many people talk to me about our episode, The Deuce, episode number three. If you haven't got back, go back and listen to that. I actually just this weekend. It was so funny. I, I went to Broadway again this last summer and I, I even hit you up. I'm like, hey, what are some tips and tricks? Because you right. seem to go all the time. Uh, I had somebody hit me up this week and they're like, hey, we're thinking of a New York trip this summer. What's the feel of New York right now? I'm like, and, and so much as what? They're like, can we even get on the subway? It sounds terrifying. I'm like, yes, you can get on the subway. I mean, yes, there are certain conditions in which you might not want to. I have a friend who lives in Manhattan, gave us a lot of really great tips. We were going to go to a Yankees game, and we did. We went to a Yankees game on 4th of July. And she said, it was a really smart idea. You took a taxi. <laughs> and I'm like, yep, yeah, because we saw the throng of people get on um, and off the subway after the game yeah and that, that was a suggestion it wasn't like you're gonna get your your wallet stolen or you're gonna get your your purse robbed or anything like that it's just you're gonna be packed in there like sardines right <laughs> we were there last week and the same thing like it's not like we kept hearing it's not what it used to be i found it to be cleaner i found it to be yes. like 
like more spacious. Uh, we saw a couple shows. We went to a museum and shopping. And I was like, this is, uh, it's comfortable. So I really, right. and I know like a lot of shows are like closing because they can't get people in and, you know, yeah. there's it's in a flux, but mm -hmm. like now's the time to go. And it's, it was hotel week. We got great deals. Um, oh. Restaurant week is this week. Uh, so I mean, people are missing out, but if you are, if you haven't experienced a big city and you're, and it depends on, you know, yeah. what you're listening and watching, but theater's better than ever there. Like new stuff oh coming God. out. It's, uh, yeah. the revivals are great. So yeah, I want to go back. We're ready to go back. <laughs> this is what I was saying. Like, I had no idea what COVID was going to do to Broadway and, you know, it, it, it behaved in kind of an expected pattern. We're going to do these big flashy shows that are going to get people to come back. Okay. We had Hugh Jackman and the music man. And I've talked about that a lot, but right. then you have things that are like, wait, wait, Beetlejuice was kicked out of the winter garden because music man was going in, but we really wanted to see that. So they yeah. put that up again. And then you have things like Kimberly Akimbo and some like it hot that are just destroying. And now they're closing. And well, I don't think something like yeah. it hot is closing yet, but, um, but, now coming up this season, we're getting spam a lot. We're getting right. uh what was it? Uh, the Who's Tommy. Like who would have thought? Like we're gonna get a revival of the Who's Tommy. <laughs> well, we went, we saw Merrily We Roll Along, and oh, yeah. Um, yeah, and it was phenomenal. And even though it's set, you know, through different decades, like a lot of the jokes still hit in an ironic way. <laughs> it was like this works now. Uh, yeah. Some of the so a lot of those themes which we see come around again every every few decades. So hopefully, and it's introduced to a whole new audience. We also saw Gutenberg, which was oh yeah, completely fresh. A little, mm -hmm. a little. I I don't. I think if anybody but Josh Gad and Andrew Rinalis did it, it probably wouldn't be the phenomenon yeah. that it is because they're just That's, incredible. Yeah. But it was it was like this this is what we want to see like we want mm -hmm. we want those staples and we want something totally oddball that just yeah. says we're taking a shot we're gonna make this happen and, and um, oh. so i'm happy to see that well and and like you said last time you were on the show uh the renaissance always follows a plague so yeah. so yeah. here we are yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we were at a point in broadway right before covid where they're like uh we'll give something a shot but it's got to be based upon a movie or it's got to be something that we've already seen six times right <laughs> you know? like the hot new musical is juliet i think it's romeo and juliet oh, and juliet yeah and six yeah. right like six is really big on the so right. you're seeing this feministic rise as well with strong women leads retelling history and mm -hmm. in a fun mm -hmm. new way that yep. um is kind of refreshing i think it's it's not your traditional standard musical which is great but just something kind of Right. Kind of quirky, kind of for like I would take my kids to see it, mm -hmm. not just the commercial where before I'd be like Lion King, Harry Potter, we'll go to those. But now I was like, I take my kids to see Merrily. It was very funny. It was like, <laughs> this is this is what things used to be like. And um, you yeah. know, those kind of things. So it's I'm I'm glad that I'm glad risks are being taken again. Mm -hmm. Um I really hope it can become more affordable again though, too. That would be nice. That would be nice. Uh, well, well. Anyway, uh, that that's so interesting that you brought up. You know, you've got all these vehicles for women to get on stage, because um, Karen, that's what I brought you here to talk about today. 
<laughs> I don't know. Hit me with what you got. <laughs> Have no idea. Okay. So here's the question we're going to start this one out with. So you're aware that women were not allowed to perform on the British stage during Shakespeare's time, right? Correct. Why do you think that was? Well, personally, <laughs> it that was women. a deep. Um, <laughs> oh, God, there's a pun for you. That was a deep well. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, Probably because they were home taking care of the house, taking care of the taking care of the kids, taking <laughs> as opposed to like that they're not capable of performing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would be okay. I mean, I don't remember that was 20 years ago that I did theater history, but that's yeah, right. <laughs> well that's what they retain. I I think there was a part of that. Like there are very defined social roles in, you know, it, it very much was the man is the breadwinner and the wife stays home and takes care of the house, which included, you know, uh, the children and the food and all that. Sure. So I'm going to start with a, a, a clipping from an article I read. Actresses first appeared on the English stage in 1629. So after Shakespeare had died, mm-hmm. when a troop of French players gave a performance at the Blackfriars, A. Thomas Brand wrote to Archbishop Laud expressing the anger of the crowd in that the French actresses were, quote, hissed, hooted, and pippin pelted from the stage. Thus, Brand concluded he, quote, did not think they would soon be ready to try the same again. <laughs> I mean, nobody likes a Pippin pooted. Exactly. No, no. <laughs> so, I mean, it wasn't from that cutting alone. It wasn't so much like, well, the women aren't entirely suited. It was that the audience was very vehemently against it as well. Well, and I, I know this isn't kind of where you're going, but I will say what I want to put this out there because this goes along. When we were in New York, we went to the Museum of Sex which I highly recommend, but it does start out with the history of the carnival and how, and, and how women, it was, it was set for men to enjoy, like you go with your family to the sideshows, but then in the evenings, women were the primary entertainment for burlesque for, so that role of objectification, like this mm-hmm. is what they can do. So um, really discounting kind of that mental strength to what you're, to what you're talking about. It kind of goes hand in hand with women performance highly recommend them right right oh oh that is so appropriate to what we're going to be talking about yeah oh good Uh, so as i've said many times before on this show women did not appear on the british stage for a great many years they did serve in other capacities though such as sewing and marketing uh and even some playwriting here and there even though it was kind of like secret and when a play was performed they're like oh no this was written by a man but for centuries women did not appear on the stage on the british stage as performers and I got to be careful with that because I got to, you know, so many people are like, the first time a woman appeared on stage was bleh. You're like, no, 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 no. Like in a lot of Asian theaters, they had been there for centuries mm-hmm. on the main continent of Europe. Like they'd been doing it for quite a while before the, the British got around to it. So, yeah. Theater during the British Renaissance, while incredibly popular, was loudly scrutinized by the very vocal Puritan faction for distracting people from more wholesome activities like manual labor or church attendance. Yep. (laughs) Harlots! Harlots! (laughs) Here's a piece of a proclamation from William Prynne, a recognizable Puritan lawyer and political figure during the Renaissance and subsequent periods. Quote, 
Popular stage plays are sinful, with two L's, heathenish, lewd, L-E-W-D-E, ungodly spectacles, and most pernicious corruptions. God forbid. I know. I just, there are so many of these, Karen, that I read, and I'm like, okay, can you say why? And they're, they're just ungodly. That's it. It reminds me of in the 70s when Dungeons and Dragons was first coming out. Yeah. And and everybody's like, oh, they're just because it's magical. They're they're trying to get Satan here on Earth. I'm like, right. Nope. They're just kids who want to wear costumes and roll dice. You know, right. I mean, uh-huh. it's card game. <laughs> they don't want to play sports. They don't want to, you know, do drill work. They, you know, they, it, that's it. It's right. imagination. Let him imagine, you idiots. Anyway. All right. So. For men to attend or participate in theater would be putting their everlasting souls at hazard. Thus, for women to do it would be considered even more sinful due to women evidently being less able to maintain their own souls. So I guess there are even sections of legal codes that forbade women from appearing on the stages in many circumstances. So like it just yeah, and, and I couldn't really find any. It was just kind of hinted and sure. and so it didn't seem a part of like universal law. So it seemed to me like it was more localized, like in this city, women are just forbidden by law, or in this section of town, just forbidden by law. They can't do it. Mm-hmm. So thus, all parts before a certain period were played by men. Now, this also caused a problem in that it was considered sinful for men to cross-dress. But Considering that it would be considered more sinful for women to appear on stage, it was begrudgingly accepted for men to play female parts. I mean, the lesser of the evils, right? Isn't that how we make decisions nowadays anyway, too? Yeah, yeah. I mean, how far does the lower side of the scale drop in either circumstance? Sure. And again, this was the practice all the way through the Renaissance. I just, I love thinking of that. <laughs> My last episode was on adaptations of Romeo and Juliet. And okay. just that great love scene. I can just see people out in the house watching these two kids and they're going, oh, that is the sweetest love story. Or, you know, that big yeah. feeling of that impulsive teenage love. And it's two dudes rubbing their stubbly cheeks together. Yeah. <laughs> A little bit of peach fuzz where they missed the shaving. <laughs> The soap because they didn't want to shave. It's like, okay. It's just so ironic. Like, people out there are just going, oh. That's the true willing suspension of disbelief, Aaron. Absolutely. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that their tackle. Yep. I'm pretty sure the tackle box in there doesn't have any weights. Um, (laughs) Now, if we continue through the timeline of history, I would encourage all my listeners to return to my pilot episode, The Consequences of the Interregnum, for a full version of the story of what happened between the Renaissance and the next couple periods. But long story short, the Puritans gained power, effectively ended the Renaissance, they executed King Charles I, while his son, King Charles II, escaped to France to live with his royal relatives for a while. And under Puritan rule, theater was abolished for public performance in 1642. And... No spoilers here. If you've listened to that pilot episode, the Puritans didn't do so hot at running a country. Can't take all the fun away. Now, exactly. <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, oh, my balance. God. It just, <laughs> I think of that so many times. Like, um, you know, I, I just told you, I, I went to my uncle's funeral in North Dakota over the weekend in Bismarck. And it was so funny to hear stories of people who, like, 
lived out in isolation on a farm because that's just where they lived. Sure. And, you know, people were like secluded from a lot of things. And they were shocked when their kids would reach that age of curiosity. And they'd be like, well, what happens if I drive a car at 100 miles per hour on the highway? Right. Right. <laughs> and I'm the first one to do it because I haven't heard Mm-hmm. what's going on i mean this was all mm-hmm. pre-internet right for yeah people. yeah there, oh, absolutely. there once was a world where internet didn't exist and mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it's like if we don't know what's happening and right but we have urges to enjoy ourselves yes we want, we, risk is inherent and right i think that's what the puritans didn't want that it, it yeah. was a control thing and if you try to repress that yeah can't it eventually that. will explode. Yeah, yep, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, after the, the Puritans were done screwing up country, the people, the British people brought back King Charles II in 1660, beginning the period known as the Restoration. And as listeners may remember, Charles II is one of my favorite characters on this podcast. Because while Charles II was in France, he got a taste for a couple things. Theater and debauchery. I mean, that's, again, it's like the icing on the cake when you've only had the cake. And you're like, (laughs) this is, this elevates it. People were telling me this was yummy. Uh Uh-huh. And now I know. (laughs) Now it's going to be mostly frosting. Okay. While we have some of the most treasured works in the canon of Western theater history from the Restoration, the period is also known for its lewd comedies, often depicting the sexual malfeasance of aristocrats. But one big development of the British theater under Charles II was the inclusion of women as performers on the stage. And this was done for several reasons. Now, like I said, Charles II had been hanging out in France during his exile and attended the French theater quite often. And like like I said earlier, over most of the European continent, women had been on stage for a long time. So when Charles was restored to the throne, he wanted to restore England back to its glory before Puritan rule which included a cultural overhaul. He granted license for two separate companies to begin producing theater in 1660. And along with this move, he suggested that characters should be, quote, played by their natural parts, which basically meant that men should play men's parts and women should play women's parts. So, you know, just with one simple line, you know, it all sounds good and fine and on paper, right? Oh, it always does. (laughs) It always sounds better on paper. (laughs) You just put a bunch of men out of work, Chuck. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Well, there are suggestions that Charles also did this because he thought men dressing as women on stage promoted homosexuality. And he just really wasn't too into that. But also, he sure did enjoy seeing the feminine figure displayed on stage for all to see. <laughs> mm-hmm. Was that included in the uh, intro in the Museum of Sex? It actually was. I'm sure it was. It does. It goes through (laughs) all the history. It's really Uh impressive. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Charles wasn't the only one. I hate to say it, but having women on stage was quite profitable for theaters because no one had seen it before. Yeah. Also because of the free-swinging libidinous abandon that Charles promoted throughout the aristocracy. Well, and the men had the money. Like they oh, want yeah. to see the female form. Like oh, absolutely. And if you can suggest that they might see more 
than what is displayed in just a woman in a dress on stage mm-hmm. or in their home. Oh, yes, absolutely. So it could be assumed that anyone who went to see theater may have only been going to ogle the pretty ladies on stage. I mean, but like you're saying, frankly, having women on stage was just an incredibly profitable business move. Yeah. On December 8th, 1660, the year in which Charles II granted the licenses to two theater companies, one of these companies, the King's Company, staged a production of Othello in which the role of Desdemona was played by a woman, marking the first time that a woman performed a role in a public theater presentation on the British stage. But we'll get into exactly who played that part later. But to start the evening off, oh my God, Karen, this is so great. Poet Thomas Jordan was commissioned to write and recite a prologue. And here are a couple excerpts from this prologue. I come unknown to any of the rest to tell you news. I saw the lady dressed. The woman plays today. Mistake me not, no man in gown or page or petticoat. A woman, to my knowledge. Well, if what you see is what you get, I think you hit the nail on the head. (laughs) But, you know, as I've described on the show before, Restoration audiences were not quiet. They were not timid. They didn't just sit out there and and applaud at certain times. It's like a rock concert. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they get out there and they're just like, take it off. Take it off. Absolutely. I mean, they're sitting there with two mistresses on on each arm and and they're going, well, should we get her? She could join us this evening. And just as loud as could be. Anyway, so here's uh, here's the second excerpt from this. Have modest thoughts of her. Pray do not run to give her visits when the play is done. Don't kidnap her, please. (laughs) Hold on. This is great. If you listen closely to these passages, there is a hint of a custom that began at these times amongst the aristocracy. There were rumors of something of a special backstage pass that could be purchased at each performance, whereby audience members get access to backstage. Not so much to learn the craft of theater, but rather so that excited patrons could watch the ladies dress and undress in their dressing rooms. Oh, were the women aware of this? Oh, that yeah, absolutely. Did they get a cut? <laughs> like, is this part of the inner contract and the writer? Well, you, uh, you'll see how they uh, might have benefited from this here in a little while. Okay. Um, I mean, we know actors are opportunists, so I'm not, no judgment. <laughs> I just want to make sure it's consensual. If you're dropping a shilling in the tip jar, please ring the bell. In any case, history was made on December 8, 1660, and therefore women were seen as performers on stage, which brought about many new developments in the realm of theater and how people talk about theater. Now, besides the obvious change of seeing women on stage, the way plays were written had now changed as well. Because women were such a precious commodity to have on stage, playwrights began to figure out how to get the most out of their resource to maximize the value of an admission ticket. Mm. Oh, and here's here's an excerpt from an article I read. In the past, playwrights would refrain from describing the appearance of female characters. The presence of actual women on stage brought with it the inclusion of erotic descriptions of these female characters, and older plays were rewritten to include such language. (laughs) 
<laughs> We're talking about Romeo and Juliet, but soft what light through yonder window breaks. It is Juliet and her ample bosom. Yes, yeah. <laughs> like, ooh, she's 12. Like, what's She's got a sweet backside, too. <laughs> ah, God! He squats. Yeah, so here's, here's the example that I found that, uh, I, I mean, I read an example and I went, how, how, what? And then I went, oh, okay, this is it. Best way I can think to put it is when, like, women would say, where's your powder room? I just need to go powder my nose. And really what that meant is she's got to go to the bathroom. Right. Right. <laughs> but. Politely. In this, yeah. So in this instance, it'd be like, I got to go powder my nose and make sure my my chest is in a perfect arrangement so that um, you're seeing as much as you can. So I'm objectified. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And they describe it in detail. She goes off stage and they're like, I'm sure she will hoist the girls in a certain particular vertical direction. You know, uh, so yeah, that happened. But that wasn't all. New scenes started to become somewhat formulaic in the writing of new plays. One of these was a couch scene. Have you heard of this? No. Mm -mm. Okay. Cutting from an article. In such a scene, an attractive actress was placed at center stage on a bed or couch with the scene calling for her to be asleep and in a state of undress. Wow. <laughs> so they're just like, that's what she looks like when she sleeps. Uh, she's rolling over. Oh, the gown got pulled tighter. Uh. She's like, do I get paid for this? Am I paid by line or by breath? Like, how does this work? <laughs> uh, by certain stretches. Yeah. I mean, like- you know. Is this where casting couch came from? <laughs> it might be. <laughs> like if I if I lean over the bed uh, upside down, are they going to get a better shot down the front of the get? Okay. <laughs> boudoir, the, the beginning of boudoir. Okay. This next one, I don't like to talk about. It really makes me uncomfortable. I hate to say the okay. word, but this is what it's called. And so, <laughs> I, you know, since it's in history, it's called the rape scene. Mm-hmm. Here's a cutting. The scenes were designed to sexualize even the most pure of female characters. This device allowed female characters to retain their virtue while still appeasing the audience's desire for sexuality. As rape scenes became more anticipated in the plays, the scenes themselves became more and more explicit. End Uh. quote. Uh. Uh. So just like I was saying, you know, you're talking about Romeo and Juliet and you went, God, she's 13, knock it off. But yeah, that's that's what happened. Well, it's that forbidden fruit. You know, it's we always have to push the envelope to try to get that thrill factor in, in mm-hmm. anything. Um, so that doesn't surprise me as, as yeah. icky as it as icky as it is. Like we you right. see where the where all this began. Right. And you know, I I started to read that and I went, Oh, I don't know. Do they actually and it's like, no, it's not that. It, it it's almost worse in a way because the rape is actually the audience's like personal mental rape of the woman. And you're like, Oh, well, I'm filling in the blanks. Yes. Which you don't know what the person next to you is thinking or what they're experiencing. And we go to Mm -hmm. theater because it's an experiential and it ties into our, what we have, our, our desires and you know, all that. So it kind of is, it's almost setting itself up to fail because, you know, in terms of where we know where we're going in history. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, 
Okay, I'm going to put that one aside. I'm not going to talk All about right. it again, but we know it's happening. Sure. But one one of the ones that we know really well out of this period for being written specifically for, for this period were breeches rolls. A breeches roll is when a woman is written to dress like a man. Now, it could be she is actually a female uh, performer, but her, the character is male, or at some point there's a plot device that requires a woman to dress like a man in order to gain some sort of advantage. I think of Peter Pan. Yeah, yes, exactly. Okay, Peter Pan, yes. So this was not popular in so much that it was about taking the piss out of man as a satirical measure. Rather, it was for the costume. To play men, women would often wear tight-fitting leggings. You know, you're talking about your doublet and hose, Mm -hmm. which would reveal more and more of the female form, which just um, increased the value of the ticket price. Sure. (laughs) It's just so weird. I know. Well, it's so funny. Like, well, you were talking about it earlier, like burlesque. You know, you you pass by some places and cities, and you see things like triple X. You're like, oh, okay, I know what's in. There. I know what that is. You don't need to put pictures of it or anything. I mean, mm-hmm. it, I, we pretty much already know. This is so at the same time trying to be subtle, but completely overt in what they're doing. You know, it's like, we're going to the theater for a nice time. I want to see women in their legs, you know? Well, you see that now in modern costumes with the, it's not, they're not nude, but they're in nude bodysuits with the, right. with the appliques in specific spots. So from a yeah. distance, you're kept guessing and it's just kind of titillating in terms of mm-hmm. like, they look great, they're in shape or they're confident to see women kind of own that. Yeah, but it's a little bit different when you're how we got there, which is where you're starting. Of like, yeah, yeah. we want to show all the bits and pieces without showing, yeah. without being indecent, without telling you you're coming right. here to see all the bits and pieces. Right, right. you're going to um, get a show. Yeah, I mean, I I go into that when I do my Rocky Horror Shadowcast every year. Mm-hmm. There are certain parts that you go, okay, so like. Rocky, for example, Rocky's supposed to be like the pinnacle of sexuality because he was designed that way in a lab. Mm-hmm. Right. And then and then you have Janet, who is the unsuspecting hot girl. Right. right? Like right. she's always, you know, in very uh, virginal but buttoned up clothing and then ends up in a corset and leggings by the, or corset and hose by the end of the show and 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 is just smoking right right but w- when i do that every year i go let's forget about those things i mean some of those things can come into play but let's forget about those because this is not a show about what our society defines as sexuality this is a show about how do you find your sexiest self right and that's a totally different thing it is. People come to that show because they're like, I like to explore myself and I like to feel safe in my own body and my own skin rather than I'm going to a burlesque show and I want to see the girl in the champagne glass, like pour uh, champagne all over herself. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah. Well, hey, Karen, would you like to meet some of these women? I'd love to. Okay. What makes them tick? Yeah. Now, before I get into the actors, I do just want to take a moment to mention that not only did women participate on the stage, but very significantly in playwriting as well. 
Like the young men known as the wits, who are partly responsible for the British Renaissance, some female wits actually were some of the new think tank of writers creating content for the stage in the Restoration. So there are several of these women who are just writing these plays and they're like, mm-hmm. I know what, I know what's going to sell tickets. I know what's going to, and yeah. they were really innovative. The most recognizable. And I, I, I know you were a student of Tom and Tom said it to us this way. Her name was Afra Bean, but I've also heard it as Afra Ben. It's like a, a German ish name. Afra, Afra. <laughs> Let's call the whole thing off. Um, <laughs> Anyway, she was the most successful female playwright of the entire period. And while she's an amazing character to discuss, I may just reserve her on her own to her own special episode. But what a life. What I will say here, though, is while she obviously faced a lot of controversy and opposition due to her gender, she pretty much made everyone eat crow with the amount of financial and artistic success she had as a playwright. <laughs> like, go get him, girl. He's a trailblazer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And a threat. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And right. That's yes. But speaking of women who succeeded in the face of diversity without succumbing to the vice of the day, I'll bring up a few more who appeared on the stage. Anne Bracegirdle. Quite the name. Yeah, right. Anne was one of the first famous actors on the British stage who was known for her comedic timing, spryness and wit, and she got a lot of attention for playing breeches roles. While many women would succumb to the attention paid by Restoration audiences for their perceived lasciviousness, and Bracegirdle actually stayed quite virtuous. In fact, she gained quite a reputation for being quite chaste and often was referred to as, quote, the celebrated virgin. Oh, bless her heart. (laughs) That's what she always wanted to do, I'm sure. (laughs) Well, I think it was one of those things where she's like, I guess I know what sells tickets and I guess I know right. I'll still get paid does does not mean I have to get on the cover of Playboy, you know? Absolutely. Right. So it's known that Anne was adopted by the family of Thomas Betterton as a child, who is argu- uh, Thomas Betterton's arguably the Restoration's greatest actor. He mm-hmm. also, though, he took over for William Davenant's theater company. And from all accounts, it's been understood that the household ran itself with traditional values, despite working in this lurid environment of theater. <laughs> Willing suspension of disbelief again. Uh-huh. Yep. They go do the burlesque show and they all come home and they watch Let's Make a Deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Leave it at the door. Yep. We're fine. We're fine. I mean, it did seem like they just came in like the Ghostbusters and, you know, all the slime is on their coveralls and they just take it off and, you know, go get in the hot tub. Um, Anne retired when her career was at a peak, possibly because of a new upcoming starlet. Perhaps she saw the writing on the wall or understood that as she was getting older, she didn't need to live live in sin any longer. She basically spent her remaining years in solitude. Kind of like a Rick Moranis thing. I'm done. Right, right. Like, well, good for her for taking control. Right, right. And still got paid. Was a working actor in in the restoration as well. Right. The actor that is suspected to have driven Anne Bracegirdle into retirement was... Anne Oldfield. Now, pretty much each of these actors had almost the same description from writings in that time, even though there were subtle differences between them. Almost all of them were known for their prowess in comedic roles, and most of them were noted that they could be just as good at tragic roles, but they were almost all known for their physical beauty, their figure, and many of them had very flowery descriptions of their faces. 
I'm thinking Marilyn Monroe as you say this. Like <laughs> right? very Oh, yeah. She was the look. Like I don't like she could act, but she wasn't the greatest actress, right? No. But she no. played her part. She knew mm-hmm. what she was for. Right, right. And I think like on the on the flip side of that, you've got somebody like a Pamela Anderson who has this look mm-hmm. and has really capitalized on that look, but then always kind of wanted to be legitimate. And everybody went, but no, you belong on a calendar. And now she's makeup free everywhere. She's like, yeah. I'm done. I'm done with you people. And I just right. find that so refreshing. I know, her. right? Absolutely. Like, it's like, go girl. <laughs> uh-huh. Now, unfortunately, in that time, Anne Oldfield was no different. Oh, she's great at comedy. She's great at tragedy. And what a looker. Yeah. Being one of the later actors in the Restoration period, her career was marked by a few career shifts that caused some controversy, having taken over as the principal female actor for one company and then making a huge shift moving from one company to the other, which was like a really big deal. Yeah. Did they have contracts back then? Yeah, yeah. It was actually, um, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but yeah, you get hired by one company, you know, you're expected to stick around for a while. It wasn't like a motion picture deal where it's like, okay, you're locked into like seven pictures or something like that. Uh, And I don't even think it was a time frame thing. It's like you sign on. Okay, you're just with us now. Okay. But if they didn't like it, they could they could switch sides. And, and that was a thing too. Like that would draw tickets, tickets one place or the other. Like, Anne is going to the other place. Well, we should probably go see both places and see why one's awful and one's better. Oh, controversies. Yeah. Right. But while the celebrity of a female performer on the British stage was mostly based on being able to see her on stage and over-sexualizing her, much of the allure was the personal life of the performer. Where do we know that from, Britney Spears? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, please dance in your shower with knives oh, again. That's amazing. Yeah, She is. Love her, but that's what she's known for, right? Is her personal life. And not just her. And Lena oh. and Brad. Come on. Oh, my God. Uh, so this is where it started. Jennifer and Ben. and oh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> oh, and the new one that I absolutely love. It's the stupidest thing. It's just two really pretty people who are in the spotlight right now. They just did that romantic comedy. Uh, I think it's called Anybody But You or Anyone But You. And it's oh. Glenn Powell and Sydney Sweeney. Who oh, both, yeah. They have their own lives and everything. But everybody's like, have you seen the pictures? Have you seen the pictures? There's no way they're not together. Well, we're um, we're in Chiefs country out here. So oh. we're oh, my God. Oh, Kelsey Swift. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all in. Uh-huh. I don't even care, and I'm all. I'm like very invested. <laughs> I'm interested to know if like ticket sales went up as soon as they started dating, because people are like, if we get a ticket, we might see Taylor up in the box. It the demographic has shifted in the stadium, but because oh. they were they were Super Bowl champs last year, people went regardless. Mm-hmm. But also, oh. it's um uh, now it's like very much younger, and she's. From what I hear, all intent, like she's very friendly to wave at kids if she sees them. Oh yeah, but, oh she knows she knows what she's doing. But it has turned a, de- a different demographic to a, a mm-hmm. predominantly, you know, it's it it. She's like what we're talking about. She right. is going to support her her man, which is totally normal, a totally normal thing. Yeah. But it's her, her association and her global um, notoriety is drawing a whole new audience. 
yes. that's going to support her and whoever. And, and it's American football, which is the most ridiculous sport ever. But um, <laughs> when you really think about it, but it's also a lot of fun. And so it's it's selling tickets. Mm-hmm. My kid watches it now. She's right. she's always been a bandwagon Mahomes fan, but um, now she's <laughs> all in on. I hear about it a lot. So it's that, that same idea of how can I connect with these people. Right. And and they haven't had the best season this year either, but nobody cares about that right now. They're just going, I'm a chiefs fan because of Taylor. <laughs> well, back in the restoration, the personal life of the next several people we're going to be talking about are quite exciting. Now I always find this kind of fairly ironic because much of my research basically put actors and sex workers on the same level at that time mm-hmm. and thus a lower status, right? Sure. But the aristocracy flocked to see these women and to proposition them. Mm-hmm. So we're just talking about Anne Oldfield. While maneuvering a fantastic career on stage, Anne Oldfield had a few scandalous affairs that were the talk of London. One particular affair was with Arthur Mainwaring, a prominent political figure in the Whig Party. Anne and Mainwaring were involved for somewhere around 10 years, and the couple had a child out of wedlock. Anne continued acting while pregnant until she physically couldn't do it anymore. And after she had the baby, she returned to the stage three months later. Oh, my gosh. So she got her maternity leave. Yeah. Well, back then, too, like, who knows what her postnatal care was? Because that would have been pretty brutal. Good for her. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I didn't read it anywhere. So, you know, we talk about... When celebrities, like when known celebrities are pregnant for a role and you're like, oh, I could hardly see it. And then they have the baby and then they come back and you're like, wow, it hardly looks like she was pregnant. Sure, sure. You know, I, I never heard anything about it. So she must have stepped back is all I'm thinking is like that body must have been able to do that. Well, and I think that the the figure looked different. like the figure, the desired figure probably was a little bit more. Oh, Curvy. Yeah, a little curvy, a little more hourglass. Yeah, scrumptious, so, delicious. Probably, you know, she was breastfeeding. She they she was probably really in demand because she had grown a couple of sizes. Sometimes those hips expand. Uh-huh. And, so yep. now post postpartum women are in demand. They're like, Absolutely. this is a <laughs> me one that's had a gaggle of them. So anyway, the scandal with Ann Oldfield and Mainwaring mainly came after his death. Because up to this point, it's like they've had a kid. Okay, yeah. fine. Yeah. Mainwaring died in 1712 at the age of 44. Ooh. Anne, Anne was 24 at the time. Those who would rather villainize the women of the stage began to suggest that Mainwaring died of some sexually transmitted illness that was given to him by Anne. In response, Anne ordered an official autopsy which revealed that Mainwaring had died of tuberculosis. Good for her. <laughs> I know, right? She, she, I love this woman. Right? <laughs> statue she gives. Good for her. Yep. And Anne went on to have another child with another suitor after that, who was kind of high up in the military. And not after that, I like, I couldn't find much more about Anne Oldfield, but I'm like, what a cool story. Well, like she was in the military. She probably started, maybe she, this is the gentleman she, uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're done now. Mm. 
Well, what do you think so far? I have to admit, I knew that things didn't exactly go according to plan when women were first allowed on the British stage, but I also have to admit, getting to know these women through their records and history, well, they impressed me more and more the more I read. And the next few are just damned fun. But while we're here, I'll remind you again to give the show a rating or review wherever you're listening. And any kind of feedback you can provide helps the show more and more and allows podcasting platforms to get the show to more people. Any help you could provide would be amazing. But let's get back to Karen Knappenberger and the conclusion of Women on the British Restoration Stage. But if we want to start talking about some Restoration women who had affairs partially due to their fame, woo, let's strap in. Here we go. Margaret Peg Hughes. She went by Peg. Okay. Well, many historians agree that Peg was the actor who'd played Desdemona that fateful night of December 8th, 1660. You know, the first appearance of a woman on the mm-hmm. British stage. There are actually a few conflicting theories. Most prevalent of which is that it was not Peg, but rather another actor who had come to prominence at that time named Am Anne Marshall. And yes, that's the, the our tally of Anne's for this episode is now three. So, I got it. Oh, yeah, okay. Popular name. I guess so. But this suggestion that Anne Marshall could have been the first woman to perform theater on the English stage comes from a few pieces of information. One that both Peg and Anne worked for Thomas Killigrew's The King's Company when Othello was performed that fateful night. Two, Anne was noted to have played Desdemona at later performances of Othello with The King's Company. Which brings me to another point that I couldn't 100% point out in my research. There are other female roles in Othello. Mm-hmm. So if either Peg or Anne played Desdemona on that fateful night... The suggestion of history is that only one woman performed in Othello's at Faithful Right, right. <laughs> or maybe she was the first to walk on the stage, take a bow, and then come out later. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> but I don't know. My, my diseased imagination goes, well, this suggests that Desdemona confessed all of her sins to her best friend, who was played by a man. I mean, we've got to, when we're making a big shift, we just want to dip our toe in. Right, exactly. Let's get one woman. That way the audience doesn't have to deal with too much drama. I mean, I'm paraphrasing the lines here and everything, but I I think Othello's really, really mad at me. That really sounds awful, Desdemona. (laughs) I won't tell my husband. (laughs) Okay. In any case, I'm inclined to believe historians that have put a little more effort into this than I have, and I'll probably say that it was Peg who first appeared as a female actor on the British stage. Now, while again, Peg was noted for her talents in both tragedy and comedy, but as with all the women here, like I said, they'd often find at least one critique of their appearance and also their demeanor. Mm. Here's what diarist Samuel Pepys, who, God, like, I was describing this to my mother, uh-huh. And she's like, did you know, he went into such detail as to describe like the order and routine of his morning toilet duties, oh, you know, gosh. like the clipping of the eyebrows and then we'll clip the nostril hairs and then, you know, uh, yeah. we sounds very well kept. Yeah. Yeah. For a peep. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what Samuel Pepys had to say. Peg was a mighty pretty woman and seems, but is not modest. That's very judgy, Mr. Peeps. I know, right? He continues. She is a great beauty with dark ringleted hair, a fine figure, 
and particularly good legs. Tell me about Peg Hughes. Have you seen her gams? <laughs> she doesn't talk much. She seems sensible, but she looks great. And great ringleted hair. Uh, but again, it was not so much her performance or appearance or her uh, historic roles. I guess she also appeared as Valeria in the original production of Alfred Bain's The Rover. It wasn't these things that drew public attention, but rather it was her personal life that drew people mm -hmm. to the stage. You see, Peg never married, but that didn't stop her from being rather active in the bedroom. Very early in her career, she was suspected to have been involved with Charles Sedley, a dramatist and everything that I found said he was a famous fop. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's like, oh, Charlie, yes, he's quite the dandy. Now, Samuel Pepys mentioned in his diaries that he sneaked a kiss from Peg upon a visit backstage. So he probably bought one of those passes, and she... She saw it and gave him a little smooch. She was even suspected to be one of many, one of many of Charles II's mistresses, but not for long. Sure. Because her most famous affair was with Prince Rupert of the Rhine. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Rupee. Rupee. Rupert was royalty from what could best be described as the German royal family. Since it was all kind of like at, at sure. that time, it was just... I think I read somewhere as something like 200 to 250 different specific states. And oh, wow. they all had, yeah, they all had royalty and they were trying to kind of coalesce, but I don't know my German history that well. Anyway, but having some sort of disagreement with an older and more powerful brother, Rupert self-exiled to England where he was welcomed with open arms by his cousin, King Charles II. Well, he knows a little something about needing to visit some family. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, he gets it. And sees this young, handsome cavalier man with a great mustache and, and ooh, ooh, the allure of an accent. Oh, that'll get some ladies in, in yep, my mm -hmm. yep. Oh, I love having Rupert around. He's the wingman. Yes. So in any case, Rupert was a bachelor and happened to meet Peg when she attended a party in 1668 with a French count, who she was also probably sleeping with. Anyway, Rupert was pretty much head over heels for Peg after the party, but Peg was not so much. She apparently refused his first gifts that he sent to her. Ooh, she, mm -hmm. this woman knows what she wants. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, hey, that's hard to get. She, I, I think she, uh, yeah, I mean, she's, she's keeping her lines in many ponds. Yeah. However, by the end of 1688, after having been seen together at several events, she was convinced to set up a home with Rupert in London. Oh, okay. Yeah. She also retired from the stage at this time to focus on being a good housewife, despite the fact that the two were never married. There was something I read that they'd be seen in public together, but rather than him holding her left hand with his right hand, he held her right hand with his left hand. And that was like the indication that we're never going to get married, just so you know. <laughs> well, it's it kind of reminds me, too, of like, maybe she got tired of all the crap. Maybe. And was like, I'm happy with this dude, but mm -hmm. my personal life is your business and I don't need it. Yeah, maybe. But they were still very, very public. No. Anyway. And there were a lot of schools on th of thought on why they never got married, but many speculate that she would just never be accepted by the German royal court. Mm -hmm. His descendants would never, like, get the titles anyway, whatever, stuff like that. But 
I guess uh, Rupert's older brother, who he was having the tiff with, uh, actually kind of encouraged him to marry her anyway. Because like they're like, look, we all know she's like this sex worker on the stage. Okay, You're we get it. Together, you've got a shared bank account. Like what? <laughs> Just legalize it. Yeah, right. It's fine. All the millennials out there are gone. Uh huh. Yeah, we know this one. Sounds <laughs> 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 familiar. <laughs> heard it. Heard it before. And thanks for my social security. Um, now, in any case, Peg actually gave birth to their daughter, Ruperta. Oh, bless them. Bless. <laughs> bless their heart. Ruperta was born in 1673. And throughout their affair, Rupert's gifts to Peg were extraordinary. Mm. It is estimated that throughout the relationship, Rupert gave Peg at least 20,000 pounds of jewelry. Twenty uh, like jewelry in the value of twenty thousand pounds, including a pair of pearl earrings that were basically heirlooms of Rupert's house in the German royal court. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they were pleased. Now, in 1676, when Peg returned to acting, Rupert set Peg and Ruperta up in an estate in Hammersmith valued at twenty five thousand pounds. He's taking care of them. Good for him. Yep. And unfortunately, Rupert contracted respiratory illness and died in 1682. Were they the last partners, though? Were they still together? Yeah. Yeah. They were still together at the time. Oh. And he left Peg and Ruperta equal portions of his estate. But after Rupert died, Peg didn't do so hot. Oh. She gambled frequently. She she sold those pearl earrings to the Duchess of Marlborough. And the home in Hammersmith was purchased by two merchants from London. And Peg died in 1719, so. Oh, shit. Yeah. My God, that's a long time after he died. Jeez. <laughs> well, that, that, there's that 20-year difference for you. Yep, absolutely. Oh, that seemed to be the thing in this thing. Like, every one of these girls had a guy at least, like, 20 years older. Yeah. Oh. Now, if we're going to talk about restoration women who drew people to the stage due to beauty and scandal... We're going to finish up today by talking about Nell Gwynn and Maul Davis. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Now, loyal listeners might remember Nell Gwynn from previous episodes. She's She's been on the show a couple times. She is arguably the most famous female actor of the rest, Restoration. She was probably the most famous of all Charles' mistresses as well. Their affair was hardly kept a secret. Maybe one, one fed the other, Aaron. Yeah, yeah, that could be. They knew, she knew the ticket. Well, and the funny thing is, like, Charles had a queen. And I, the very unfortunate thing was she was unable to have kids. Like, and and it was not for a lack of trying. Sure. I mean, they tried many, many times and everyone ended up in a miscarriage. And I guess she sure. was just like terribly depressed. And Charles being the cool guy he was, was just like, sorry, you're sad, dear, but I'm going to the theater. Now, Nell was also famous for driving men crazy with her breeches roles, because as you may have guessed, she was described as being quite attractive. Sure. But Nell's journey to the stage is quite lurid. Nell was born in 1650 to impoverished parents, and very early in her life, her father died in debtor's prison, and her mother chose to take Nell and her sister to London, where more financial opportunities would present themselves. What really ended up happening was that Nell's mother began a brothel and Nell and her sister became criers in the street to drum up business. As young girls, oh. like, 
before the age of 10, I think, even. I mean, I really thought you were going to say she put him to work other ways. So in a way, that's um, the lesser of the two evils. We're we're getting there. Oh. And Nell often credited this job as a crier in the streets as essential to her acting career as she learned to project her voice over the busy London streets oh. to promote her mother's business. Good reframe, Nell, on that trauma. <laughs> Kids are so resilient. <laughs> if I didn't scream, hot women, hot women, I wouldn't have been able to, uh, you know, deliver Desdemona's cries. To be a hot woman <laughs> on the stage. Yeah. Oh, and they also, uh, Nell and her sister, served drinks inside the house to uh, patrons waiting their turn. Makes sense. Yeah. So in any case, it is most likely that both Nell and her sister became part of their mother's menu. Um, It's too bad. Yeah. Nell also began working for the King's Company as an orange girl, which is someone who stands in the house with her back to the audience selling oranges to patrons. She's like the concessions girl. This woman is a seller. (laughs) She is an entrepreneur. Bless her heart. Yep. However, she actually joined the King's Company as a performer sometime between 1663 and 1664. So if you're doing the math, Nell would have only been 13 or 14. Huberty. Yeah, exactly. Nell astonished audiences with her talent, appearance, and comic timing. Mm -hmm. But Nell was not the only actor creating a buzz at the same time. A new starlet was being created in Mall Davis in the opposite company, the rival Duke's Theater Company, and had become known for her singing voice. Mm -hmm. In 1664, Mall appeared in the play The Rivals, in which she was written about extensively for singing a song called My Lodging, It Is On The Cold Ground. And from what I can tell, it was like just two or three lines long, but everybody knew this song. Her performance was so popular that she continued to perform it quite often over the next three years. Whoa. Like, I don't know if it was in the same player. They're just like, Ma, sing the song. Go out on the street and drum up business by singing this song. They've got a crier over in the other company. We've got a- <laughs> <laughs> that orange girl's got a good voice. And that little girl who's offering, you know, free women down the street. We got we to gotta sing over we that. We got to get over her. Yeah. Now, Maul Davis met King Charles II in 1667, and the two were in a notable relationship by 1668. However, in a move that seems to have created an entertainment rivalry, you know, which is often kind of a a risky but profitable business move, Nell Gwynn sang a parody version of that song that made Maul Davis famous in 1667, three years after Maul Davis had sung it originally. The song had the same title and was part of a play called All Mistaken or The Mad Couple. And Nell's performance of it gave a huge surge to her popularity. Now, some suggested her boost in public opinion drew Charles II closer to her. Mm -hmm. And they began their affair in 1670 when Maul was only 20 years old and Charles Mm -hmm. was 40. At least she's out of her teens. Like, <laughs> I don't care what era. It's still creepy. To oh, yeah. Bride. I really wanted to include this poem I found in here because it's just so fun. So Nell and Maul, their popularity was so grand that poems were being written about them in their honor, I guess, and recited often. 
Here's an anonymous one that has just made it through the years. Hard by Pell-Mell lives a wench called Nell. King Charles II, he kept her. She hath got a trick to handle his, <clears throat> but never lays hands on his scepter. All matters of state from her soul does she hate and leaves to the politic bitches. The whore's in the right, for tis her delight to be scratching just where it itches. That's like, they got served. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. But, but I mean, it's the same thing. It's like, you, you know, in the 80s and 90s, we talked about Madonna for being like gorgeous, but we're like, and she's also quite sexual. And that, that scared a lot of people. It did. I mean, you look at it now, it's standard, but it was totally, totally new. And it's yeah. like it, what we see, Aaron, right, is that it's okay for men to be opportunistic. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about these people's relationships, but yeah. one can assume it was opportunistic. They got the notoriety. They got the security from the financial. They at least liked the guy. and But it's the girl's fault. And uh, right. Yep. You know, so that's and that has not changed. Like, it's, I, no. I would like to think it's starting to in the in, mm -hmm. you know, 2024 ish. But odds are it 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 that shift takes a long time because it's so ingrained in us. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's the obvious black and white of, you know, masculinity versus femininity. Blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's so interesting to me at this time to just see the opposition to those those lines kind of blurring. And you're like, I mean, at the end of the day, if somebody could do a job, what does it matter? And the, the therapist part of me is like looking at the systems of like, well, she came from trauma and times were tough back then. Like oh, you man. really to, to get a to have a nice footing in society and like just live you really had to take any any opportunity you could, whether you were going to get mud slung at you or not. Mm -hmm. And that's what these these survivors did. And so I'm not yeah. going to judge them, but I'm also going to recognize that they came from like a lot of their decisions were probably based off of the trauma and the abuse that they experienced and, right, and they made right. it forward. So <laughs> and I hear that and I hear several of these women like, you know, they came from rough backgrounds and stuff. And some of them it was like, we have no idea what their life was before the stage. Like there's sure. no record of it, but it sounds like they were able to at least turn that into something in their favor. Sure. Which is, you know, we know that people come to the theater, not really, they, they want the fame and they want the notoriety, but what keep like, they think they want that, but what keeps them in the theater is the connection of how a theater yeah. functions. And yeah. I think that that's probably very true back then as it is today. And if I can hook up with this guy that can offer me security once the show is over, because the life of an actor and a stagehand and everything that goes in is, is in that moment of the show. And, and even that, if they were only an actor, they're, like I said, they're on the same level of a prostitute anyway, right. socially. Right. Well, we're paying them for a service. Yeah. So if if we can get this count or this prince sure. or this king to be our major daily sponsor, then the acting is just kind of a fringe benefit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they can act. They can act that role if they want to. Uh-huh. So going back to this uh poem, the first line, hard by Pell-Mell, that section citing Pell-Mell, mm -hmm. that's the section of London where Charles granted Nell land and a house. So they can own, have their own little cottage together. That's nice of him. 
And there's some story I read, and I really don't understand it. I included it in some episode at some point, but it's something like that land that he granted her was one of the only, if not the only piece of land that had like a special legal ramification and it wasn't actually supposed to be granted to a normal civilian but king is like i'm the king (laughs) hey you gotta go respect a sugar daddy that takes care oh actually no here's what it was he's like well i'm going to buy this place and that's where you're gonna live and she's like no you're gonna give me the lease (laughs) her right <laughs> and he's like, well, I don't really want to. She's like, well, I guess you're not getting any then. And so he, he finally leased royal land to a civilian. <laughs> I I know, this is so empowering to hear. We don't get this in theater history, Aaron. I like, know, it's... right? <laughs> so despite what seems to be libelous, the popularity of these women never diminished, and their shows sold tickets like crazy. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, in Nell and Mall. Each mistress produced Charles II with several illegitimate children who, after his death, were granted titles and estates. Oh. Uh-huh. And I, I can't remember what episode I said it on. It might have been, it might have been that first one. One of his illegitimate children, you can trace all the way down to Diana Spencer. Really? Well, that's a small world over there with all those <laughs> It's a small goldfish bowl with a lot of fish in it. Well, and Karen, that basically is my story of women on the restoration stage. Karen, I love it. <laughs> I love it. You know, when we always talk about the restoration and and just, you know, theater history, we do tend to focus more on the man, especially history, because it is more male-centric. Yeah. But the women's contributions to that and how we know how a lot of theater does reflect what was going on in society at that time, like, I think these stories are important to be told. Oh, absolutely. Because we're still living it. Yes. <laughs> it's a framework for what we see today. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, as you go through it in, in most theater history courses, you'll talk about, well, you know, women were allowed to be on the stage at this time. And then the next portion, you start talking about the plays and then you go, oh, all these women were portrayed in kind of a negative light. So let's stop talking about it there. Like, no, 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 no. Let's kind of use this to see how women were able to use the perception of what women could be to their advantage. Well, and if it's negative today, doesn't it necessarily mean that it was negative back then? Right. Like, like the perception of we're trying to put our context in this century to what that was back then. And it right. may you know, it may not have been, and maybe they just didn't know it, but it sounds to me like these women really took those opportunities for what they were worth in the times of the men who were doing totally normal things. Oh yeah, absolutely. Even if it feels icky today. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I mean, I think specifically of Nell, who was like Mm -hmm. born into poverty, probably Mm -hmm. never really knew her father, Mother went, okay, let's go to London and try to make something of ourselves. Found the opportunity in that men with money and lust would pay for it. And like, well, I guess if that's going to work, then I guess it's going to work. And the girls saw that leading to Nell telling King Charles eventually, no, no, no. 
if you want me to be your private little toy and set me up in your own special little dollhouse, mm-hmm. you're going to give me a little bit of equity. Right. Right. <laughs> well, and it's, these men sound like they are very emotionally immature, mm-hmm. but there, there, there was a relation. There was a genuine relationship at some point with some of these people that we really can't judge. It sounds like that they took response, the responsibility to at least set up and make sure that they were well kept for their troubles. Right. It's kind of refresh. It's nice to hear. It just was, it's, it's the nature of the biz because we still see that today. Mm -hmm. You know, people still have affairs. People still have, they set up their relationships are messy. Theater is messy. (laughs) It is what it is. So it's kind of nice to know that we're, even though we are, we, we complain about whatever the flavor is of the cultural current. Mm -hmm. It's all rooted in this. This is nothing new. So what do you think, Humanidites? Is sexism just going to be inherent in the entertainment industry forever? Or do men just not have any concept of how much better women can play the show business game than men? I'd like to say that things are leaning more towards equity at this time, but who knows? At least it's a good discussion to keep having. But what do you think? Feel free to write me at trident at tridenttheater.com or go to tridenttheater.com and use the contact us form to give me your perspective. I'd love to hear from you. I'd also like to thank Karen Knappenberger for her contributions to this episode, and I look forward to working with her again. But for now, I'll sign off. This has been another episode of Euripides Humanities, a theater history podcast. I'm Aaron Odom, your host. Another episode will be in your ears in two weeks, and I will see you at intermission. Mm-hmm.